excited about what God is doing. Really excited about what God is doing there. We have a fantastic uh, group of kids in our church, and uh, I know every pastor is supposed to say that, but I'm not every pastor, and if they weren't, I wouldn't say that. We have a great group of young people. We really do. And the future is bright. So my message this morning is not really overly long, and it's actually not even overly deep in terms of theology as much as it is thought. I want to get you to go to a couple of places emotionally today that maybe even intellectually and get you to challenge yourself and think a little bit about your own personal walk with God and where you are in terms of your place with God with all that. And again, I've been talking a lot lately about what's happening in the world and, I, and there can be a place where that can be overwhelming. And I know that because I'm the one that reads the articles and sees things and looks at stuff and has pastors constantly sending me things. And it can be overwhelming. It really, really can. Because as I'm getting that stuff, I'm looking at my kids and I'm thinking, I want them to have a future, right? And so you see how bad we have completely taken the world. And you might say, well, I haven't done that. They've done that. No, as Christians, we have to include ourselves. If my people will humble themselves and pray. Why do you think that prayer starts that way? Because the ownership is not going to begin with the world. They're not going to own it. We have to own it. And if it begins with us owning it, then the power of God begins to move on them. And change begins to happen. I keep getting pastors reaching out to me. Hey, do you know what's going on in Canada? I'm going, uh, duh, yeah. I keep getting Canadians reaching out to me going, do you know what's going on in Canada? Uh, duh, yeah. Nobody really understands the full scope or the range of what it is but I keep telling my American friends, you need to understand this has massive implications here because the same interest groups that, are drove, that drove that in Canada, they exist here and they are watching and with great anticipation, hoping for the same leverage here. And guess what they want to do? Depower the church. And the crazy part is we, the church, only want to love everybody. Is that right? Have you ever heard me or any pastor from this pulpit say that we hate any demographic of people? Say that loud enough that the internet can hear you. No. Yet, people who are living in sin, feel that we hate them. Weird, I know. But I felt that way too. When I was lost and living in the world, I felt Christians hated me. Or that they were going to try and fix me. 
That was, that was, that was the rub right there. Don't try and fix me. And far too often we're guilty of this issue of trying to fix people. How about we try this one first? Love them and walk with them. Love them and walk with them and let the Holy Spirit do his work. Don't get me wrong, there's a time to preach. Absolutely positively. But not three seconds after you've met someone. It just doesn't always work that way. My message title is Confronted by the God of Change. Everyone in this room has been confronted at one time or another by the God of Change. Am I right? Let me see your hand. How many of you have been challenged by the God of Change? You were living your life one way and bam, he like, it's like a hand to the forehead. You're going to change. He changed your course. He changed direction. He redirected the resources in your life. Everything just kind of changed. Doesn't mean what you were doing was wrong or bad even. It was just your life changed. Most of us have been confronted in the world with change. How many could say amen? The past few years, we have been confronted with change, right? I was going to hold a mask up, but I was afraid that would get take, taken down. I never thought there would be a day that we would have to wear those things. I remember when SARS broke out in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and like it was like a ghost town because I lived an hour from there, hour and well, 20 minutes, depending on how fast you drove. And everybody in Toronto was wearing masks and it was trickling down our way. And I, I ain't ever wearing one of those things. I think I spoke too soon. And then, you know, it, was, it wasn't long. And then we had, everything started here. And I thought, I ain't wearing one of those. And before you knew it, we were all wearing those. And you know what? I'm not here to say that whether that was right or whether that was wrong. Listen, that, that's an argument for a coffee table in your living room with 12 of your closest friends, okay? Not from a pulpit, not in church. I've seen guys do it. It's a mistake. But we've been confronted with change. Some of the changes may have been blessings in disguise. Some, not so much. In the Bible, when God confronts us, it's never a good moment. It's not a good moment when God confronts us. However, it can and often did end up being a blessing in disguise further down the road. So what about you? How does this affect you and I? As God confronts you either firmly, bluntly, or gently, God often had to confront me bluntly, as I'm just one of those people that, especially when I was younger, man, when I was young, I was like, go, 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 go all the time. How many of you are like that? You're just always kind of going somewhere, doing something. And so God, to get my attention, usually had to like slam a door into my forehead. And then he had my attention. It brings a question. And this is a question I want you to think about throughout the message today. Are you positioning your life to allow God to transform you for the good? Are you allowing God to position you so that he can work in your life for the good? Setting up to fail. 
James chapter 4, verse 13 to 15. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. But what is your life? You are a mist. Uh, the King James Version says a vapor that will appear for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. So the warning is issued here about the following. Today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. And you might say, why is that a big deal? Well, it's a plan that's been made completely by man without consulting God at all. So God's not involved in this at all. Verse 14, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. That doesn't mean that we don't make plans. We should make plans. We should have a plan. As parents, we tell our kids, what's your plan? What's your life plan? They should have a life plan. But as parents who are believers, we should be telling our kids, you should have a plan, but you should also leave room for God by the power of the Holy Spirit to interrupt the plan. Because if you don't, when the Spirit of God talks to them, they are going to trust, they're going to trust you over the voice of God. So you always want to leave room for the Spirit of God and you want to leave room for them to come back to you and say, Mom, Dad, I know I've had this plan, but I feel God's talking to me about this. What do you think? Can we pray about it together? Doesn't that make sense? We want to leave room for the Spirit of God in the conversation. If we don't, we bottleneck our children into a plan. When I was a youth evangelist, I got asked after speaking at an Indonesian retreat in Toronto to go to California. And when I was there, most of the kids that were there were very, very wealthy. Their parents had sent them from Indonesia. Most of the parents owned huge businesses, one a uh, kid in particular, his parents owned a factory, like a big industry factory. I don't even know the name of it, didn't, didn't ask. But let's put it this way. Um, they owned a full spread house in California where five other Indonesian kids lived. And there's this big giant baby grand piano in the living room, which made me drool. Um, it was a beautiful, beautiful piano. And in the retreat, God began to speak and in the last service, before I walked in, there was, there was a lot of young people. I, don't, I think there's 50. He told me there are 13 young people that are called to ministry. And I went, 13? And so I start to preach, and I start hearing this voice. Oh, by the way, my wife didn't like the bottles I carried, so she said, this is pretty. She said, you're going to get up and spill one of those plastic things all over yourself. And so 
I'm wrestling with this number, and I got up, and I said, the Holy Spirit told me there's 13 of you that have been wrestling with being called to full-time ministry. And right away, 12 came right to the front. And I, well, 12's good, you know. I was ready to move on with 12. And the Holy Spirit said, don't you move. There is one more. And I thought, I've never been a guy that, I've never been been a guy that is like super specific like that. And I waited and I said, there's one more. And this kid was wrestling. I could see him fidgeting. Just like, I mean, it was, he was coming out of his skin. And I walked right over to him. I said, it's you. And he said, yeah. Tears just everywhere. And he said, I can't. I said, why? And he was just about to start university. His parents had sent him to the United States to get a degree to come back home to run the business. And that was mandatory. They didn't care that he went to church, but he had to come home and run the business. He was not allowed to do anything else. He said, I will not be allowed to do this. He said, if I do this, they will cut me off and never speak to me again. I said, listen, all I can say is this. If God has called you to do this, he will make a way for it to happen. I said, are you willing to say yes and let me agree with you in prayer that God will make a way? And he said, yes. I never saw him again. I don't know what happened. They had all my contact info. I never heard a word. But all I can tell you is that God, in that moment, rewrote the destiny of 13 of those kids and probably even more just because he spoke to them. But they all had plans. Every one of them had plans. Now he talks here a little further, but what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now there are two Christian groups. There are two groups of Christians. And I want to just give you kind of group one. Do whatever they want without consulting God on anything. You might say, well, really? They exist but still living what we would call the Christian life. You know, they call themselves a Christian. I'm not here to judge, right? You're not here to judge either. So they profess Christ, they may pray, they may worship, but they don't do anything outside of come to church and live the good life. Okay, so that's group one. Now we go to group two. They lay lay themselves out in their lives at his feet, seeking guidance and direction. How do you know? He guides us through his inner voice. How do you know it's him? He guides them through his inner voice. His word is confirmation. And through others, after, after he has spoken to us. God will always confirm that he's talked to you through his word, and through other people after he's talked to you first. 
If somebody comes to you and says, you know what, I was praying. And I'll tell you, there are good intercessors and there are bad intercessors. Good interce- An intercessor are people that stand between the porch and the altar. They, they pray, they intercede, they stand in the gap for the church. And the good ones, they know to be sensitive. There are others that don't. And so they may see you and they may see something and it might be bang on the money. And they'll come to you and they'll say, this is what God showed me about you. This is what you're supposed to do. But here's the thing. God hasn't told you. And I have seen young people especially, young adults especially, alter their entire life direction based on the word of this person. It's dangerous. I have had to go to more than one intercessor and rebuke them and tell them that they gave a word out of order and tell them they were not permitted to speak again until they could prove that they had grown in maturity. But the damage was already done over here because this person's now no longer in church because they got smashed on the rocks. You see, that happened even in my life three different times. You know, I was told over and over I was supposed to be an evangelist, travel to every single country in the world. That was what I was supposed to do. This pastor thing, mm -mm, not a pastor, because I was told I was too, too chaotic and too, too, you know, too charismatic and, you know, all this stuff was thrown my way. You know what? I've been to like, I don't know, five countries, four. I hate traveling. I hate it. If God had asked me to be an evangelist, I'd be a nervous wreck. I'm a... If you could combine the two... That's what I am. I love to evangelize, but I do it as a pastor. I love the fact that evangelism is a part of my heart, but I did it as a young person. I traveled when I could, but friends, my heart is to pastor people. And if I had listened to those words, I would not be here today, nor would my family be the way they are today. I probably wouldn't have met my wife, and everything would be different. That's how important this stuff is. He also speaks through the passions that he's placed inside of us. Why would God call you to do something that you have no heart for, no talent for, no gifts or tools for? He doesn't. He doesn't. Unless he plans on giving you those things. There should be a pull in your heart towards the things he's calling you to. I mean, some of you have amazing gifts in certain areas. And if you had a pad and a paper, I would ask this question. What are you passionate about? Like, what makes your heart leap That's what you should do. That's what you should move your heart towards. Because chances are, that's what God birthed in you. I've tried lots of things and I'm horrible at them. I just am. 
Now, does that mean I can't do other things for a season? No, I can. But this is what I was made for. And I don't shy away from that. I told a pastor one time, listen, I was made to do nothing else but this. This is what I'm made to do. I told a teacher in high school, I will be a pastor. It was career day. And they said, pick three choices. I wrote down one. Handed him my sheet. He handed it back. He said, there's two spaces. I said, yep. He said, what else are you going to pick? I said, nothing. He said, well, you're a senior. You got to pick a couple extra options. I said, no, I don't. I said, I know exactly what I'm going to do with my life. I said, he told me when I was 16 years old, I'm already doing it now, and I'm going to continue to do it until the day I die. He goes, okay, but you're going to get an F. I said, okay. I was passionate to do what I do. Now, is every day roses and cherries? No. How many of you know people are not always fun to deal with? You know, I, don't get me wrong, I love people. I, I, I'll be honest and say this, probably out of all the churches I've been in, you guys are probably the friendliest church I've ever been in. Seriously. And, I, and I'm not saying that just to say it. I wouldn't say it otherwise. It's the truth. I've watched how you receive people coming in. I've watched how you love on people. I've watched how you put up with me. I mean, come on, right? That right there. I mean, wow. But here's the truth. Knowing who you are is significant because then the devil can't get in there and tell you you're something else. Identity is big. Very, very big. Moms and dads, grandparents, begin to chisel away and help your grandkids figure out their identity because then the devil can't tell them who they are. I'm constantly having this conversation with my kids all the time. Have we arrived at anything yet? Nope. 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 Not at all. I've tried. I mean, a few of them have a couple funny things for me, and I just don't know if they mean it or they're messing with me. But anyhow, time is our greatest commodity, isn't it? We should include God in the expenditure of the time. It's our greatest commodity, but we should include God in the expenditure of that time. I mean, just something simple like this. This is, hear me. How many remember when, I know I'm going to make myself sound old, and whenever I say remember when, people go, so what? It's not that way anymore, but here it is. How many remember when everything was closed on a Sunday? Raise your hand. I remember that, and I remember the only thing we did was have a Sunday nap. We ate really big meals, um, and we slept because we ate big meals. How do you remember that? Yeah, I long for the big meal part and the sleep. I do. I still get the sleep part in. And then I remember they opened a few businesses and then it was wide open. Do you know, they did a study on that. And they actually found out 
that it really was negligible the amount of income that they generated on the Sunday versus the other days of the week to make it worth being open, yet they still do it. So we know that was a part of the enemy's plan, right? So imagine just saying with this verse right that we just talked about, God, you know what? In my daytimer, I'm going to put Sunday down as just your day, the Sabbath. Oh, wait a sec. It is the Sabbath. It is his day. So God, I'm going to give the Sabbath back to you. And I'm going to follow the Sabbath, and I'm going to make it a day about rest and family. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend it with my church family, and I'm going to go home and spend it with my family. And we're just going to, you know, lay around in the yard on a blanket or toss a ball and have something to eat. But we're going to spend that time. Imagine how much, let me just throw this out there. How many of you think that would have a profound effect on the family in the United States of America? Just that. About 40%. I guarantee you it would. Because having the Sabbath, they've already done clinical studies on this. It creates a mental reset as we go back into the work week. Without taking a break, there is no reset. So our bodies are always on the go. Our minds are always on the go. That's why we're dealing now with mental sickness on a level that we've never dealt with because there's no reset, there's no rest. Physical disorders on a level that we've never experienced because the body gets no rest. I'm not beating anyone up. I know sometimes you have to. I know that some people in this room, your job requires you to work on that. I get it. I work on Sunday. So I take another day in the week, and that's my Sabbath. But Sabbath rest has proven, proven. They've done studies on the health of people who take a Sabbath rest. And they do markedly better in their overall health. Anyhow, that was a bunny hop. So let's talk for a second here about somebody who was confronted, one of my favorites. In Acts chapter 9, we see a guy named Saul. And you guys probably know this story. Some of you may not. And if you don't, and you're hearing it for the first time, fantastic. In Acts chapter 9, meanwhile, Saul, still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So we can safely assume he is super passionate against the Lord's disciples. Like, he's got a problem here. He's breathing out murderous threats. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the way was the name that was titled the new church. They called it the way. Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now, you might wonder what was the light. Well, the light was Jesus himself. 
Now Jesus himself comes in the light. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You see, he was living out James's passage. He was doing what he wanted to do. He was doing what he thought was right. Now, mind you, I will give him this. He was doing it with 100% commitment. He was all the way in. All the way in. Saul was doing what he thought was right. We know in verse 4 that he was, literally ran right into the Lord. <laughs> it's like running into a 395-pound lineman. Boom. Oh. I used to play hockey with a guy. His name was David Narr. Like that name alone is tough. He on skates was 6'7". At 16, he was 17, I was 16. I'm getting excited because we're talking hockey. And he was my defense partner. Oh, yeah. And we had this thing that we would do. Now, if you don't like hockey, just you pay attention just for a second. Just indulge me. There was a thing we would do. If a guy was running down, or not running, skating down the ice with the puck, I would draw him to my side, and then I would creep up, which would force him to go this way, which we would call the trolley tracks. And then David was waiting. And David would step up, and we would call it lowering the boom. And he hit, when he hit somebody, it, oh, the sound was not good. Not good at all. He hit at least one kid a, a game so hard. I don't think he came back on the ice. I just think he turned around, went to the bench, and went home. I love playing with David Nari. You know why? Because nobody came near me. I had so much room. I could like skate around and do figure eights if I wanted to. Nobody came near me. It was great playing with David Nari. So we see this whole picture unfolding. He is knocked to the ground and asked the question. He was told to give an account. We do know that he ran into the Lord. In a moment's time, all of his plans and all that he knew was turned around on him. Jesus was about to rewrite the playbook of his life. Who are you, Lord? Saul, he asked, verse 5. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what to do. Now, like he should have in the beginning, he asked, who are you, Lord? And is willing to set aside his life and go into the city to do what he was told. There are two mentors. Parents, grandparents, this is really worth sharing with your grandkids. There are two mentors, the Lord and those that he places in our lives, including yourself. He will mentor us along the journey. God wants to be our mentor. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit or the world. I tell young people this all the time. You can either let the Holy Spirit mentor you or the world, but I promise you the world is a much tougher taskmaster 
and will leave you with scars that will last a lifetime unless the Lord heals you. You see, I didn't grow up in the church, and I, I, I say that a lot, but I want people to understand that, not as a badge of honor, more as a badge of stupidity on my part. How many of you grew up in the church? Can I see your hand? You have the best testimony in the entire world. I've, I actually had a Christian come to me and say, Pastor, I don't have a testimony. Maybe I should go out into the world and get one. I literally, I looked at them like that. I said, you know what? I wish I was you. I wish I was you. I wish that I didn't go out into the world and have a worldly testimony at all. And mine wasn't that bad. Because it leaves scars. And the Lord has to come and heal and walk us away from those things and then pour into us and teach us how to live all over again. I mean, I grew up in a home that wasn't a Christian home for a while. It took time. Do you think my mom and dad got saved and all of a sudden just snapped too and next thing I knew it was we were listening to Jesus music in the living room? Come on now. It didn't work that way. It took time to watch them rebuild their marriage, to watch them heal, to watch them apologize to us for what had happened and what had gone on and what we had witnessed and what we had seen. I was like under 10. Those things had to be healed and had to take time. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. You see, God was even evident to those who are with Saul. When God speaks to you, he is speaking to you. It's something to remember. And I've done this too. When God's talking to you, don't make the mistake of trying to get the opinion of 12 other people. Because he didn't talk to them. He talked to you. Now, there's nothing wrong with going to some godly people and saying, listen, I just need you to pray with me about this. I need just a little bit of godly wisdom. If you know somebody who's got some godly wisdom, you know, but do not, please hear me carefully. Timing is also everything as well. Don't just take what God gives you and throw it on the table for everybody. We know Joseph did that and it cost him a lot, didn't it? The truth is, hold it and guard it in your heart. Guard it close to your heart. Saul was now blind, literally this powerful man who was persecuting the church left and right is being led by the hand as a blind man because God had enough. God had enough. And it was time for him to change. The transformation was about to happen. 
Moving from who he was to who he was supposed to be is a process. He was being physically led by the hand. A man of plans and power, now blind, being led by the hand. In Damascus, there's this man named Ananias, verse 10. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord called to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he sees a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now, we know that Ananias is obviously a godly man. He's getting a vision from God. God speaks to him. But, you know, even godly people have their limits, right? Godly people have flesh, and it gets scared. In verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. I mean, like, he's like, hey, God, this guy's scary. I've heard all about him. Are you sure? You sure I have to do this? I mean, that would, that's a fair question. Fair question, but God is not having it. He's not having it. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. If you don't know what a Gentile is, those are people who are not Jews and their kings and to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. There's that word suffer. See, people who teach prosperity teaching will teach that suffering's not in the Bible. Well, there it is. And Paul, as we know, wrote, almost, what, three quarters of the New Testament, and his calling was to suffer for the Lord's name. Now, he did it with joy in his heart, but suffering is a part of our journey. There are times that we do suffer. It's what we do with it, how we handle it, how we walk through it. And let's be honest, how many of you ever gone through it and you pitched a tantrum? Come on, there's a few honest, there you go. How many ever went through it and you just got mad at God? I, I, I got my hand up all the way. How many of you went through it and you just got quiet and withdrawn? And then how many of you went through it and you thought, this time, Lord, I'm just going to trust you? When you get to that point, you're starting to get the maturity thing down. It happens. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, and I love this. He went from being afraid to this. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul. I love that. Brother Saul. He recognized him as one of his own. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine what was happening to Saul as he was hearing this? Woo! God talks to other people too. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. 
He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained strength. I mean, wow. See, Ananias was not living on his own will, but the will of the one who mentored him. See, he was living as God's servant. And that time was God's. What if he had, according to that James verse, had his calendar completely full and God had asked him to go and he's like, nah, I'm sorry, but no, I can't do it. Sorry, I'm busy today. I got quiet. I mean, ask yourself this question. What if you were Ananias? Would you be willing or could you be flexible enough to drop what you're doing and go? Or no? That's a toughie. Don't get me wrong. I wouldn't want to do it either. I'd be uncomfortable. I'd be like, Ooh, I don't want to do that. But would you be willing, could you free yourself up to go do it? I know what I'm saying is challenging the lifestyle that we've adopted in America. I'm speaking right to the lifestyle we all live. I know that. I'll tell you something personal. When we first moved to the United States, when we were down south, people ran 300,000 miles an hour, seven days a week. I mean, all the time. And in Canada, it wasn't like that. And me and Sean made a prompt. We said to ourselves, we are not going to do that. It took about a month. And we got swept right into that. Because the culture will just grab you and carry you away. And I think that's sad. Because as believers, we should not let that happen. We should be able to minister in the culture, be able to step out of it and find our safe place. Saul sent several days with his disciples in Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, he knew the word of God. He knew all of it, but, but he was blinded to it. And now the blinders were gone. His eyes were open. The scales were off. The revelation was clear. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And isn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Wow. You see, he was totally transformed. He just got stronger and stronger. And as believers, we should not only get, after we pray the prayer and accept Christ, be different in our personhood, we should grow in favor and strength. People should see a strength in us that they themselves want. Because you see, inside of them, there is a God desire. Right? I'm going to ask Pastor Nate to come back to the stage. 
How can we do that? How can you do that? How can I do that? Well, there's a couple of ways. One, I think, is probably the best, and I'll just give you one. We have to decide to be original, to not be like anybody else. You are original. No two of us are the same, but we often compare ourselves to other people, and we shouldn't do it. In Romans 12, 2, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing, perfect will. We are not made to fit a mold or to be the same as the world around us. No pattern will ever line up. Yet time and time again, we try to line up and fit in. And this is not, you might think that's a teenager thing. That's, a, that's an us thing too. As individuals, and even by the way, churches do this too. Oh, we need to be like that church down the road. Did you see what they have? They have this program, they have that program. Do you know what? Can I just say something clear as day? I'm, I don't care what they're doing down the road. I don't. I hope God's blessing them. I hope it's going well. I'm not interested in being like them. Because God didn't birth this church to be like the ones down the road. He birthed us to be unique. Should have been an amen there. We're supposed to be different. But we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That literally means to have a new mind, a mind that thinks on a different level, a different plane altogether. We should look at people and not think about them the way we used to. We should look at people and see potential and see something in them that we would have never seen before. I don't look at anyone and see nothing. I look at every person and see something. That's just the way I'm wired. And friends, I'm gonna tell you, that's what God does too. There's something for everyone to do. And only then will we be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing, perfect will. A couple of just reflective questions before I pray. How guilty are we of boasting about tomorrow? That's a tough one. What happens when we refuse to allow God to lead us like Saul did? What changes in us when we are confronted with the Lord himself? What can you and I do to avoid being conformed or molded into the world's image? How do you and I need to let God renew our minds? What areas are still firmly in your and my grasp versus belonging to God? That's something only you and I can search out. My advice though is to take some time and to just say, Lord, if there be anything in me that I'm still holding on to, 
I want to give it to you today. Father, let your word soak in our hearts today. Let it wash over us. Let it challenge us. Let it direct and guide us. Let it lead us. Let it, Father, reshape the way we think and move and act. Lord, I know there's been some challenging things put on the table today. But Lord, they're truths from your word. And I pray they would become pillars of our lives that we can stand on as we move forward this year. I pray, God, for every person in this room that they would know they have value in the kingdom of God. They have value to you. The Lord, no matter what's going on in their lives, they matter to you on a personal level. I pray you would watch over them, protect them and keep them. Lord, we pray for our youth as they travel home today. The Lord, even now, maybe as they're potentially praying together or at an altar time, that Lord, you would do something permanent in their lives. That Lord, you would realign things, move things, shift things in their lives so that they beyond a shadow of a doubt would know that they have met with you and that that is permanent. It does not go away. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, God bless you as you go. Have a great day. Drive safe.